Over the past few weeks, today is our official launch, but over the past few weeks we've been gathering together for worship and for preparation for this day, and we've been looking at individual verses uh, to kind of set the tone for the mission and vision of Zion Presbyterian Church. Next week we're going to actually begin our normal practice, which will be preaching through entire books of the Bible, verse by verse, as we go through the book of Ephesians. But since today is our launch service, I thought it would be helpful for us to think through what is the motivation for our ministry and the mission for our ministry. And I know of no better place in Scripture than this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which lays those things out for us. So if you would uh, join me in standing out of reverence for God's Word as we read through it. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 11 Hear now God's word, for God is indeed speaking to us through it. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so ends the reading of God's Word. And what do we know about God's Word? It is not the Word of man, but really is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Indeed, our Father, this is your Word, and you indeed do speak to us. We do pray that you would be with us by your Spirit to hear and understand your Word, that we might be able to apply it to our lives. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Someday soon, there will be a vaccine for COVID-19. Over the past few months, we have settled into certain patterns of living as we lived under the shadow of this virus, Um, and we've begun to talk about even the new normal, what are going to be the long-term implications of, of this virus on our everyday lives. And even as we've begun to open things up here in Texas, we've been cautious, we've been hesitant, we've been careful. But someday soon, there will be a vaccine for COVID-19. And our hope 
is that when that vaccine comes, life as we know it will turn on a dime and we'll be able to go back to the way that things were before the virus. Our hope is that we'll be able to gather again uh, in person without having to worry about inadvertently transmitting a virus that we don't know that we're carrying. We'll be able to um, visit with those people that are part of that group of people that are particularly susceptible to the virus. We'll be able to send our kids back to school to be with their classmates and their teachers in person, and we'll be able to go back to work and be with our co-workers and uh, customers. And some of us might have the privilege of being able to announce the arrival of this vaccine. And some of us will have the privilege of administering that vaccine, giving hope and confidence and safety in the midst of an environment where the virus exists. Well, friends, we've gathered together this morning to declare to you something that is far better than any vaccine to any virus. Because ever since almost the very beginning of all creation, all mankind has been at enmity, has been at war, at odds with the almighty God of the universe. We've been at odds with him because of our sin. Sin has separated us from God and has put us liable to his judgment under his wrath and curse. And it affects everything about our lives. It destroys our marriages, our relationships, our family life, our work life. Every aspect of our life is affected by this curse. And yet this same God sent his son to reconcile us to himself, to restore that relationship to himself. And he has done it. He has done it in his son, Jesus Christ. And what's more, he has given the church, he has appointed the church to be his ambassadors to bring forth and declare this glorious message to you today. And that message is simple. Be reconciled to God. God, so what we have to see when we look at this passage is that God has reconciled us to himself in his son Jesus Christ and he has given to us the ministry, the message of reconciliation that we must be reconciled to him. So the book of 2 Corinthians, throughout this book, Paul is spending a good amount of time defending his ministry um, as an apostle. And we see some of that here in our passage in chapter 5. And it's relevant because he talks about what his ministry is. And by uh, connection to where we are today, we can understand what that ministry is for us. And when we look at our passage, we can easily divide it into two big chunks, uh, kind of the paragraphs that you see in your Bible. The first one, verses 11 to 15, we see the motivation for his ministry. And then the second section from 16 to 21, we see the mission of his ministry. But he starts with the motivation. And when we look at what he says, he's motivated by two things. He's motivated by the fear of God, and he's motivated by the love of Christ the fear of God, and the love of Christ. He begins, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, kids, you should know, when you see therefore, you've got to take a few steps back to see what was he talking about when he says therefore. And if we go right back to verse 10, 
Paul wrote, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And in light of that, he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of God, or the Lord, we persuade others. So we have to ask, well, what does he mean by that fear of the Lord? Paul couldn't have been afraid of this judgment. He's got the judgment in mind, but he can't be afraid of it. How do we know? Because he declares in other places in Scripture, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He knows that he has peace with God. We have peace with God in Christ Jesus. And later in our verse, he says that God has reconciled us to himself. There, there is a right relationship between the Almighty God and his people in Christ Jesus. So he's not afraid of this judgment. Although if you're not in Christ, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, the judgment should be a fearful thing because you have no protection as you stand before the Almighty God. But that's not what Paul's afraid of here. Um, perhaps more of that is, is it's a reference recognizing that even Paul will receive what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So he has been set free and pardoned in Jesus Christ, and yet he is still accountable for how he will live in the body. And so that is conditioning what he is doing. But more than that, he says, the fear, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So perhaps Paul is thinking about the fact that since all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And he understands the fear of the Lord. He wants to persuade others to cling to Christ for their salvation because there is no hope before the judgment seat of Christ other than Christ and Christ alone. And so he persuades others. And then he says this odd thing. He says, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. So the verb in Greek that he says, for what we are is known to God, is that same verb that is there in verse 10 where he says we must all appear. So I think what he's saying is that when, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, everything that we do will be revealed before God. But he's saying, but what we are is already revealed before God. God knows what's going on. God, Paul knows that, that, that his ministry lies open and exposed before the Almighty God, that God... Uh, knows that he is pouring out his life for the sake of the church. And so he's, he has this confidence that his ministry is a sign that God has approved him. He has given him this ministry uh, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, I, I know it's known by God, and I hope it's also known to your conscience. He says, we're not commending ourselves. We're not trying to boast about our ministry. We want you to know that we are sincere in what we are bringing to you. Um, he says, uh, we want to give you cause to boast or be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not what is in the heart. Paul was accused of being not that flashy, not that showy, not that impressive on the outward side. But he says, there's people that boast about those things. They boast about the big churches. They boast about the charismatic leader. But what matters is the heart and the sincerity of the message. And Paul is saying, God knows it's because my life is lived out before him. I live under the fear of God. And then he says this odd statement. He says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. But if it is in our right mind, it is for you. He puts these two parallel statements so we get a sense of what he's talking about. He says, if we have this amazing zeal 
in, in what in the ministry that we're carrying out, if we're, if we're crazy in the eyes of the world, it's for God's sake, for the benefit of our God, because uh, out of our love for him. But if we are in our right mind, if we're reasonable in how we approach things, it's for you. It's for you, because we're give, delivering a message for your sake. And there's many things in the Apostle Paul's ministry where it just seemed flat out crazy. He was constantly suffering, constantly under persecution. The, the ministry of Jesus Christ, the, the work of the church, is under constant attack from the world, from our own internal sin struggles, and we make big sacrifices for the sake of God. And he says, it, it can be crazy in the eyes of the world, but we do it for God. But if we're reasonable in how we approach it, we're doing it for you. And then he says this wonderful statement, this second motivator, he says, for the love of Christ controls us controls us. Some of your translations, if you've got a different translation, it might say the love of Christ constrains us. Uh, controls is a good translation here because what the Apostle Paul is saying that the love of Christ is, it is compelling me to do what I am doing. But we have to ask, well, what does he mean by the love of Christ? Does he mean Paul's love for Christ, just his affections for the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is he talking about Christ's love for Paul that is compelling him. And it's important because if we were to depend anything in our ministry on our affections for the Lord Jesus Christ, we would be lost. We would be lost. Indeed, it's just the opposite. Look at what he says. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So he's saying Christ's love is manifested, is made clear. He has revealed it by he died for me. And he died for me so that I would no longer live for myself, but would live for the one who died for me. And so he's saying that love controls me. I have no other recourse. I am set free from the penalty of my sin so that I can live for him. And if you go back to verse 13, look at what he does. He says, if we're beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. What does he say I do for myself? Nothing. He does not live for himself. He lives for God. He lives for you. The love of Christ controls him. And so he is bound by the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. And so let's just pause there and say, do you have those twin motivators? Do you have a recognition that you live before the face of a holy God and you will stand before his throne to give an account of all that you have done? And know that at that same time that the love of Christ is for you that he has come and died for you. He died for all, and in him all died. In that, in other words, you have been set free from the penalty of your sin. You can stand before the judgment throne with confidence. And does that love control you? Does it control all your actions, the way that you live, the way that you think, the way that you act? Well, if we're supposed to live in, uh, for him, the question is, how would he want us to live. And for that, he turns to the second section where he moves to the mission of the church. Or for Paul, it was his mission in his ministry. And the mission 
is a ministry, and the ministry is a message. See what he says. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So, seems kind of weird. Kind of like, what, what is he trying to get at? I think the translation isn't helping us. Um, some of you might have a different translation that might say something like, from now on, therefore, we regard no one from a worldly point of view or from a fleshly point of view. The, the word is flesh, but it, I think he's t- talking about a, a simply worldly point of view. Like there's no spiritual reality. There's no, uh, nothing more to it than that. And he says, we, we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but now we regard him not like that any longer. And then he says this famous statement, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is an amazing and wonderful declaration that Paul says, because if we've read earlier in our Bibles, we know that, like we looked at last week um, from Psalm 51, David prayed as he's confessing his sins, he says, God, create in me a new heart. He recognizes that he needs some kind of uh, work outside of himself to bring about that change in his Life. He can't do it by his own power, that God must intervene. God must create in him a clean heart. And then in the prophet Ezekiel, God promises that he is going to give his people a take out their heart of stone. And he's going to put in a heart of flesh. He's going to do this work of changing them. He talks in other prophets about can a leopard change their spots? You know, Clearly not. A leopard cannot change his spots, but God can intervene. God can change the person. And now the Apostle Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Um, but, the, but I think there may be something a, a bit more than what he's, uh, what, what he's got there in the, the English Standard Version. The Greek is a bit... Um, rough. It's a bit uh, difficult to understand. Literally, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. And um, the, the Bibles that we have, the ESVs, it translates it as, he is a new creation. Um, other translations say, he is a new creature, which would make more sense to us. Um, if we have been created new, maybe we're a new creature. But he says, but the word is clearly creation. And here's where I think um, the New International Version might have the translation right, where it translates it saying, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. There is a new creation. And here's why I say this. So he says, right before that, he says, we used to regard no one according to the flesh, and we, uh, or we, now we regard everyone not according to the flesh, Um, uh, and we used to regard Christ according to the flesh, but we don't do that any longer. But if anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. There there is a a new work that is happening. God has done this thing that he's promised in all the Old Testament, and, and he seems to be pointing to himself. Because throughout all the New Testament, we hear about Paul and how he went from as bad as that could be to the apostle of Christ's righteousness declaring Christ's righteousness. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees, zealous about God's law, persecuting the the church when he could. He was there approving when Stephen was martyred, the first martyr. 
But then the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him, and he revealed to him that he would be the apostle of God's righteousness. And he gave him a new heart. He gave him new eyes to see the Lord Jesus Christ, and he transformed his life. Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy that God did this to display his perfect and infinite patience in the life of Paul. And as Paul is defending his ministry, he seems to be saying, I am now proclaiming Christ and Christ alone. I was, I was the one that, that abused the church, that hauled them off into prison and approved of their murder. There is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. And yes, each one of us, that we have that new creation if we are in Christ. We are transformed into new creation. But what he's saying is that there is now a new age, which is exactly what we read from Acts chapter 2, wasn't it? That the Apostle Peter, when, he, when the Spirit descends on the people and they say, what is going on? He says, this is what God has promised all along. That in the last days, he would pour out his Spirit on all flesh and that it would usher in the last days. Paul is saying the exact same thing. We are in the last days. God has reconciled mankind to himself. He, he has done that in, in Jesus Christ. And we are living in a new age. There is new creation. And he continues. He says, the old has passed away. The old age of no reconciliation has passed away. The new has come. And he says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And notice, notice the, the wording. He doesn't say that now God is reconciled to us. He says, no, God reconciled us to himself. There's a big difference because God has not done anything that is worthy of reconciling this relationship. We are the offending party. And yet God has taken the initiative he has reconciled us to himself in Jesus Christ. But, but what's more, he, the ones whom he reconciled, he says Christ has, through Christ he has reconciled us to himself, he gave us this ministry of reconciliation. So it's as though he wants to take the ones that he has created this new creation and put them on display and say, look, there is reconciliation in Jesus Christ. But it's not just a presentation of their lives. It's a, a message as well. He says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. There is words that we say where we declare this reality to be uh, true. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. And kids, what's an ambassador? What's an ambassador? You ought to know what an ambassador is. We talk about it from a government perspective. So the president has ambassadors that he sends to other countries, and he picks them, and he gives them a message. And when they go to that other country, they represent the president, so that when the ambassador speaks to those foreign leaders, it is as if the president himself is saying that message. So the ambassador has to make sure that they're saying what the president wants them to say. And if the president doesn't like what they're saying, he might remove them from their position. But he speaks on with the authority and the power of the president himself. And the Apostle Paul says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making his appeal through us. Now there's this amazing little word in Greek. The word is huper. It's just, it means on behalf of, but it is an incredibly uh, packed word. It basically means on behalf of. We see it earlier where he says that one died for all. One died on behalf of all. So that when Jesus died, we died with him. But now we see it here where he says, God himself is making his appeal through us. And so when the church, when the Apostle Paul, and now the church, proclaims to you, be reconciled to God, what you ought to hear is the voice of God himself speaking to you. That this reconciliation is for you. That you must be reconciled because God is speaking through us. It says, God making his appeal through us. And he says, we implore you then, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to Christ. So, and then he ends with this glorious statement, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Unpacking what it means to be reconciled, that God made Christ sin, our sin, so that in Christ we might become his righteousness. So as we just kind of think through what, what Paul is trying to get at, as we're trying to summarize everything, um, I think we have to start by recognizing that Paul sees reconciliation with God as the primary focus of what our ministry must be. Paul is focused on being reconciled to God. Our separation from God due to our sin putting us under libel to God's judgment and his curse is the primary problem that we have. And so as a church, as ministers of God's uh, word, our primary focus has to be the message of reconciliation in God. Now everything else can flow from that, but we're not going to focus on how do we fix your marriage, how do we Uh, help you to be a better worker? How do we help you manage your finances? That's not the focus. Those are fruits of the reconciliation that we have with God. Our fundamental problem is a vertical problem of our relationship with God. And God has declared that he has taken the initiative to reconcile us to himself. But when we get that relationship right, scripture has much to say about how we live in our marriages, how we live in our homes, how we live as workers, how we manage our money. But it comes from a reconciled relationship with God. But because our problem is a reconciliation problem, there is a, the issue is twofold. One is we are, God has an issue with us, and we have an issue with God. We are at odds with it. But the bigger of the two problems is God's issue with us. Because we could say, we could offer good advice. Hey, we need to submit to God. We need to love God with all of our heart. We need to do all the right things. But if God hasn't taken the initiative to reconcile us to himself, we're just spinning our wheels. Because God is the one who has to remove that barrier from our relationship. And so the only way to fix that relationship has to be in the means that God provides. And so God provides two means. He says his justice must be satisfied. He, someone must pay the penalty for those sins. And secondly, there needs to be submission to this God to accept his means. So submission to God requires 
a recreation. It has to take, it has to be something that, that changes us so that we would be willing to do these things, so that we would be willing to have eyes to accept God's way of um, reconciling this relationship. But, but Paul says that we know that there are people that are in Christ, and if there's anyone in Christ, there is new creation. And so we have hope that we, we know that the penalty has been paid, that, that God has removed that major hurdle of his enmity with us because he sent his son and took our sins, put our sins on him, and he died. And when he died, all of us died with him. And that penalty was paid. And then, what's more, you may have missed it, right there in the end of verse 15, those who live might no longer live for them who uh, for their sake died and was raised. Jesus didn't just die. He was raised for us, on behalf of us. We were raised with him, so we were given new life in him. And so it was something that happened in the past. You read those verses. It's something that happened that they did die. All have died, it says in verse 14, and all have raised with him. And yet, Paul still says, be reconciled. There is an outworking of his reconciliation as the church proclaims God's hope in Jesus Christ to say, the work has been done. Be reconciled. Be reconciled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And through that work, God is working that recreation. We are united to Christ by faith, by the work of his spirit. And we could have good advice of do the right thing, but then there's the good news that the work has been done, that we have been set free, and we can cling to Christ. And the Apostle Paul sees his mission as that glorious messenger of this message, that this is the means that God brings about his salvation. It's through the work of the church. It was primarily Paul that he's talking about, but we know from the work of Pentecost that God poured out his spirit on all of the church. And Paul and the apostles appointed other elders, and this has been passed down from generation to generation to come to Zion Presbyterian Church where we can stand and proclaim the good news that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. So be reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. Um, it's, a, it's an amazing message for us. And so for us, we ought to realize that our primary mission, everything that we do, has to be focused on this message of reconciliation. How we live reconciled to God fleshes itself out. But first and foremost, we always focus on our relationship with Christ. But I haven't really talked about what it means to actually be reconciled, and that's probably a longer discussion for another day, but let me just give just a few key ways that we can be reconciled. If we're exhorting you to be reconciled, what does that mean? Well, the first is that there's a submission to God's definition of the problem. It's admission that it is our sin that has separated us from God and that all of the problems of our existence are a result of that separation. So we have to accept that our sin has separated us from God and it has acceptance of, the, of God's solution to the problem. 
that only Christ and Christ alone could pay the penalty for our sin, but that he has paid the penalty for our sin, and that all it takes is faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Repentance of our sin, faith in Jesus Christ, and walking in the new life that we've received. But I guess the other thing is uh, right there what he says in verse 21, that he made us to be the righteousness of God. So we ought to uh, focus on living out that righteousness of God. Or what he says in verse 14, that, that we would no, might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so part of that reconciliation is dying to ourselves daily and living in a way in accordance with God's, um, God's word and living for Christ. So it has implications for us in every aspect of our life. So reconciliation is not a one-time thing. It is a lifelong thing. It is a lifelong thing. But if you've never put your hope in Christ, if you don't know this Christ as your Savior, then hear now that God has done the work for you. And he declares to you, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. He, he is gentle. He is loving. And he beckons you. He has done it out of love for you that he has sent his son to save you so that you might be his forever and ever. Beloved, we've been given an amazing message, the message of reconciliation in Jesus Christ. God has done the work. He has reconciled us to himself in Christ. So let us be reconciled to him and let us faithfully declare this message of reconciliation out of fear of the Lord and love for Christ for his glory and our benefit. Let's pray together. Father, what a wonderful gift that you've given to us, that you have done the work to reconcile us to yourself. I pray that you would, by your Spirit, work in us faith, that we would be reconciled to you, that we would put our hope and our trust in Christ and Christ alone, that your Spirit would work in us the righteousness that you desire from us, that you would make us holy, and help us to glorify you by speaking of the hope that we have, that we would declare this message loudly, boldly, and joyfully. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.